very good to be here. I haven't been here for, well, I was here two weeks ago, but before that, I think I hadn't been here for about 10 years. And, um, oh, don't you look older. <clears throat> it's great to be here. Now, we're going to think about a central question to human existence this morning. It's so central and important that you'd think that because human beings have been around for some years now, they've been around all the time I've been alive, you think possibly we might have had an answer to this question by now, right? Who do I say that I am? Who do you say that you are? Just give yourself a moment to think about that, and I'll collect answers. No, I won't do that. But just think about that question. If somebody said to you, who do you say you are? Well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, we're used to giving particular kinds of reply. I mean, I normally, at some point, sooner rather than later, have to mention that I have no hair, but that's fairly obvious to most people. I was in, um, I was in Superdrug the other day, collecting a prescription, and I had my bike helmet on and a kind of flat cap, and, and a gentleman who must have been late 20s, I would think, came up to me and said, um, excuse me, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me bothering you, but do you know what dry shampoo is? <coughs> I, I can only imagine that his partner, girlfriend, spouse, whatever, had said, oh, can you get some dry shampoo? And he um, didn't have a clue what dry shampoo, shampoo was. And I, I had this moment of inspiration. I simply slowly, in the middle of Superdrug, took my cycle helmet off and <laughs> took my skull cap off and just revealed myself in all my personal detail. And he looked at me as if I was a kind of apparition from heaven. Um, didn't say anything to me, um, just left, hopefully. Uh, either to get a prescription. He might have thought I was saying to him, you know, I used dry shampoo once and look at me now. <clears throat> or he might have thought, okay, this guy has no idea what dry shampoo might be. I have to confess, I still actually don't quite know what dry shampoo is, but you know, um, I don't really need to, probably. Who do I say that I am? We might give answers like that, but actually, when you get below the kind of surface, I do this, my hobbies are that, um, or whatever it might be, it's actually a really difficult question to answer, isn't it? So great writers have written of that very question, King Lear, through the pen of Shakespeare, who is it who can tell me who I really am? Now, I'm not myself a sociologist, but I love them because they just kind of say stuff that's around. There's some great writers. And, and many have kind of commented on the fact that in our day and age, that question is actually a very complex question to answer. And there are lots of kind of cross pressures that make that more difficult. A favorite writer of mine, Zygmunt Bauman, who died quite recently, gives a vivid description of the pressures that he's noticed in our sense of self-identity in a fast-moving and changing world, the pressures all around, he says, in the rapidly aging and abruptly devalued skills, in human relationships entered until further notice, in jobs which can be taken away without any notice, and in the ever new allures of the consumer feast, each promising untried kinds of happiness while wiping the shine off the tried ones. Some of those pressures are really quite conscious and overt, and others we just feel. They're the kind of things where we 
Did you ever get the experience of just lying on your pillow at night and say, well, I've done loads of stuff today, but I'm no nearer being aware of who I really am. I mean, please nod. Am I the only person who thinks that? <laughs> One person uh, looking towards retirement, a famous writer, I won't tell you who he is, wrote this. To put it bluntly, have I time to discover why I was born before I die? I've not managed to answer that question yet, and however many years I have before me, there are certainly not as many as there are behind. There's an obvious danger that I might leave this question too late. Why do I have to know why I was born? Because, of course, I am unable to believe it was an accident. And if it wasn't one, life must have a meaning. I must mean something. Who do I say that I am? And actually, with all this kind of current, this kind of enormous kind of cacophony of change that's happening in our culture right now, we still actually face those same sorts of questions. I'm told reliably we're now in a post-human condition. I sometimes find that, usually on a Friday night. Yeah, I'm in a <laughs> post-human condition. But normally a gin and tonic sorts that out. <laughs> Fever tree. <laughs> Light. But what this writer was talking about was this kind of new digital environment that we're in. If you're as old as I am, which is roughly 90, I'm a digital alien. I wasn't born in a digital age. But if you're much younger, as many of you are, you will be digital natives. And this writer described a world where our digital and virtual networks <clears throat> are so interactively folded in on one another as to become part of the flow of everyday life. We don't enter into a digital world. We live in it. And, of course, that produces its own kinds of pressures, doesn't it? Phenomenal ability to network across the, the globe, to be quickly up to speed with facts that are happening in far-flung countries. And yet, when a group of under-23s last year were interviewed about what their prime occupations were outside of the work environment, your hobbies, the most common, 74%, said, I enjoy using living in social media. So it's the most prominent use of spare time. And yet, in that same interview, 67%, second highest, listed social media activity as by far the top thing that made them feel bad about themselves. You can probably relate to that. I read a, an article in The Independent just last month which wrote about that phenomenon, and it wrote this. When we derive a sense of worth based on how we are doing relative to others, brackets, Facebook, etc., 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 we place our happiness in a variable that is completely beyond our control. We went on to list six ways that social media negatively affects our mental health without even us realizing. And number, number one, the top one was self-esteem. Who do I say that I am? Now, there are answers, certainly, around. Some in our faces, some more subtle, but one by one, it seems many of us 
discover that point where we just begin to scratch below the kinds of things that our culture says that we ought to be about and begin to think, I don't quite fit. These things fail to get to the heart of who I really am. They're not realistic. Or they pretend things about me which I know in my heart of hearts are not true. Who do I say that I am? And perhaps in our world where there's so much social disjunction going on and people moving from cultures to other cultures where generational divides are probably wider than they've been for decades, particularly in a university town like Cambridge, two universities, there's that sense of what Simone Vale called rootlessness. And she struggled in her life as a young French woman between the two world wars. She died tragically young, 35, I think, when she died. She wrote, to be rooted, to be rooted is perhaps the most important and least recognized need of the human soul. Who do I say that I am? Now, many of us have discovered that actually in the teaching and the life of this man, Jesus Christ, an episode of whose life we, we just heard read so well, we find someone who remains not just relevant, that's a horrible word, but who somehow sums up, personifies, manages to address some of these things that we fear to tread in. They are, if we allow them to become so properly, truly transformative. And if you've never come across Jesus before or never investigated the things that he said, I think one of the best things you can possibly do is to read one of the Gospels, the four stories of Jesus' life. The one we had this morning comes from the Gospel of John, and it's a, it's a quick but profound read. You can skim it. You can get the main ideas quite quickly. Or, like paid theologians in the University of Cambridge, you can study them in a lifetime and still not come up with anything desperately coherent. <laughs> not all, some. Now, when you come across Jesus... I want to say three things about him this morning, which just feed into this question that we've been thinking about. Number one, Jesus uses language that is full of metaphor, of pictures, of examples that are about a deeper kind of life. So this is a classic example. Give me a drink, she says. He says to this Samaritan woman. He shouldn't really be talking to a Samaritan woman. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were kind of half-castes. They weren't really up to the level of association. And certainly for a man to be associating with a woman in this kind of environment was very unusual. There was a sect of professional theologians in Jesus' day who came to be known as the blind Pharisees. And in fact, they were called the blind and the bruised Pharisees because when they saw a woman coming towards them, they would shut their eyes and in consequence would bump into things. <laughs> the blind and bruised Pharisees. So we've got to think, this even in and of itself is a remarkable story. Give me something to drink. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me a drink, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have no bucket, she says, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? So this idea of living water, she's interpreting as kind of flowing water, like in a river or a stream, not still water, as in a well where she is and he is. Where are you going to get this living water? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up or flowing over into eternal life. Now, how do you deal with a guy who talks that kind of language? I bet nobody stopped you in the streets of Cambridge and said that to you recently, yeah? And of course, what's he talking about? Is he talking about physical thirst? Or is he talking about something deeper than that? I mean, it's interesting that she immediately sort of views Jesus as a kind of um, the ultimate payoff, if you like, of water privatization. Yeah? Wow, give me some of this water that I won't have to keep coming day by day when nobody else is around to draw water for my family, my cattle, my oxen, whatever it might be. Interesting, isn't it? She's actually a very 21st century woman. I'm a material being, she seems to be saying. I have certain material needs, and thirst is obviously one of those. If you can supply that need, presumably I can go home satisfied. And our culture, we've illustrated it so far, gets very little beyond that kind of question. Because one of the things that our culture tells us is that we are, in fact, material beings. And therefore, if we can slake the thirst of our materialism, be that good health, be that a good job, be that wealth, be that comfort, or even the minimal sense of getting by, then surely that would deal with the question, who is it that I really am? But Jesus always pushes deeper. This metaphor of water is actually a very strong biblical metaphor. It's a metaphor that deals with the very stuff of real life. It's actually about God's very presence living within us, making us who we were designed to be. But he's happy for her to not understand that metaphor. He gives it to her and invites her into a new kind of space. I sense in our culture, actually, at the moment, we live in such a kind of clamped cultural frame that tells us what we can and cannot think that actually sometimes it oozes out these other things. We, one of the questions I ask of people in the street, and I take students with me to do it, is do you think that life is really only about things you can see and touch and feel? What percentage do you think say, yes, it really is only about that? Very few. And actually, they're generally my age, or even older than that, Ian's age. (laughs) 
Um, I went out with uh, a, a, a female student. She said, I'll come with you. I don't want to do any of the kind of asking. You do that stuff. So I'm used to that. So I said, yes, OK, that's fine. Let's do it. We met two women just outside uh, the Guildhall in Cambridge. And we got to that question. And she said, I'll ask that question. So she said, do you think that life is really all about what we can feel and touch and see? And the younger of the two women just started weeping on the street. And one of us, I can't remember who it was, said, oh, I'm sorry, it's obviously touched a raw nerve. She said, no, these are tears of happiness. I'm not used to people crying with happiness when they stand in front of me. <laughs> she said, I'm so glad that you're talking about this stuff. She said, if I went to my place of work and said that I had to have a conversation about the other than human material, they would think I was weird. And yet that was leeching out from a kind of a framework that had imprisoned this woman. That's what Jesus is talking about here, inviting us into a, a deeper space, inviting us into something which is far beyond simply a material thirst. If we were simply material beings, we would have found the answer by now. And let me tell you, it's not Windows 10. Yeah? See, Jesus is talking about this other stuff, this woman on the street stuff, this spiritual stuff, which somehow our culture has not allowed us to enter into. And in Jesus Christ, we find somebody who just lives it and is it and invites this woman into a new place. The water I give to you, says Jesus to the woman, will be like a well of gushing water deep within you that flows over into eternal life. Now, you can probably tell from where you're sitting that I'm a, a, a contact lens wearer. <clears throat> They're soft. They're dailies, they're brilliant. But actually, walking down St. Barnabas Road this morning, I had a sincere, distinct impression that the one in the right eye was inside out. It turned out that it was. Thankfully, it wasn't a windy day, so I took it out and I put it back in the right way, and it's fantastic, and it's restored to life. Contact lenses are like that. They're not designed to exist on a pavement. They're not designed to live in thick pile carpets. They're designed to live in a particular kind of environment. And if you have that wonderful experience of finding a lens which is in its alien environment and you restore it to the environment for which it was created, it is the most beautiful sight. I was unemployed when I was in my early 20s, and I spent many days watching this happening. Yeah? Now, contact lenses are never mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> never. Not once hadn't been invented. But actually what Jesus is talking about here is a little bit like putting a lens back into that environment for which it was created. And being human, discovering who it is that I really am, has to do fundamentally, says Jesus, with reconnecting or being reconnected with the God who made us. When the woman says, well, I can see you're quite amazing. 
I think when the Messiah comes, he will let us into all these secrets. And Jesus says to her, I am he. I am the one standing in front of you who is the one who can introduce you to the life of God. You see, with Jesus, we're not dealing with another sociologist. We're dealing with somebody on a different plane altogether. Have you met this man? Jesus speaks in this extraordinary language. Meeting Jesus, though, also involves a profound reorientation of life. What about this woman? What would she have said to the question, who do I say that I am? She probably would have said, I'm a marginalized woman. I'm a member of a half caste, as far as you're concerned. And I'm not going to mention the other stuff, because actually that will get too personal for me. So Jesus says, bring your husband. Whoops. You've got five husbands, and the one you live with is not your husband. Sir, she says in the second understatement of the millennium, I can see you're a prophet. What do you do with this kind of presence? Isn't it amazing when you get to the end of the story, this woman goes back to her community and says, come meet somebody who told me everything I'd ever done. Now, you can say that in a sort of, oh, my goodness, he's a magician. We really need to get serious with him. Or, and I sense this is more what she's talking about, I found somebody with whom I can be transparent and who has met me at the point of my deepest need. That's Christian identity. That's what it means to meet Jesus Christ, that's what it means to begin with, to begin this life of gushing water, as Jesus describes it, that wells up into eternal life. Many of you are on that road, I know. Some of you, maybe this morning, are looking in inquisitively, feeling your way towards that for yourselves. You're discovering maybe something that the North African theologian Augustine said in his confessions. I've discovered, he said, God, that you created me for yourself, and my heart has actually been restless until it has found its rest in you. That's the rootedness of which Simone Vale speaks. It starts with a transparency, an honesty, a deep openness, a willingness to open ourselves up in ways we'd never do in a job interview. We'd never do on the streets, but we're conscious of in the deepest places of our human existence, and Jesus Christ meets us there. She goes back to her community, and what happens? Not only is she restored, she tells other people about Jesus, and she becomes part of a restored community. That's what places like St. Barnabas are really all about to share that journey, to discover more of what it means to be a person who has discovered who they really are. We don't discover who we really are just in relation to ourselves. We always find who we are in relationship with other people. And so Jesus stays with them for two days. That community is transformed as this woman discovers something deep and profound about herself. 
Now, as I say, I don't know you, you don't know me, you know one or two things about me, you know I'm bald, you can see that. But I'd be very surprised if there weren't some this morning who in a kind of inner, what is it, intuition, urge, just response are saying, I need, I need to step into something, I need to respond to something that I've heard this morning. And I'm going to invite you, if you're in that situation, just to ask God, dare to ask God, Lord, if you really are who you say you are, help me to know you. And in knowing you, help me to discover who it is that I, I am. We're going to have some quiet just as we sit, and Ian's going to take over, but I'd ask you just to be really honest. This is not about my speech. It's about the one who is here, who longs to meet us where we really are.